Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. Well, good morning and welcome to the uh, Mooney Ponds Baptist Church service. Um, I hope you've enjoyed all of the worship and the music so far. And uh, it's fantastic to be together, even virtually, although it'd be even better to be here in person. Uh, this morning, you've got me preaching uh, because, uh, to be honest, after the past couple of weeks of uh, hearing about the death and resurrection of Jesus from Ian, I was inspired. And I, I rang Ian up and I said, look, you know, do you mind if I, I also add a few words about the resurrection and speak about it? Because this is, without a shadow of a doubt, one of my very, very, very favourite parts of the gospel. But before I do, I just uh, want to quickly remind you, you know, that uh, to connect through us uh, with through WhatsApp, if uh, the details are up on the screen. And also uh, to remember uh, that we are uh, setting up connect groups. And so if you've been connected to the church in any way, if we have your phone number, we'll be trying to get in contact so that we can all maintain some sort of contact with each other at this time. And you know, hang out for morning teas, even virtually. Hopefully, this will all be over soon. But you might be asking yourself, what are you doing here? This is meant to be a youth service, you know, and I am very, very far from youth. But I've been privileged by um, historic association to be asked to be able to talk today, and it's my privilege to be a part of the youth service. So without further ado, I've got a couple of questions. The first... Have you seen someone do something that you admire? What was it? Have you done something that you're proud of? What was it? Very interesting when you think about these things and just go, well, what comes to your mind? What is it that you... When you see someone do something that you admire, when you do something you're proud of, what what is it? My observation is that usually we appreciate talent, but the thing that we really admire is courage. We admire it when somebody puts themselves out there, puts themselves in danger, when somebody gives something up with no expectation of a return, with possibly even no benefit, no possibility of a return. And we admire that. In the wake of Anzac Day, we've we've just commemorated the courage and the conviction of so many young people who served their country at a time of need. Whatever you may think of the battles themselves, the way in which these young people conducted themselves was so admirable, so amazing that it has been commemorated for more than a 100 years. It's huge to be able to think about the, the, the impact that these young people had, and they couldn't even think about it at the time. At one point, they didn't know what they were going into, but nevertheless, they did, and then they acquitted themselves with incredible valour. Some of the people who demonstrated that courage and conviction attended this very church. We have it up on our an honour board on on the wall, which will be coming up on the screen. 
These were young people here in Mooney Ponds who made an enormous difference. We are also called to be courageous. We're called to be courageous people who make a stand. And courageous people who make a stand can make an impact. I'd like to show you an example now on a video. I love the way in which the goose stares down the cows and the way in which the cows find themselves unable to shift the goose despite being bigger and despite being in a herd. One lonely goose stares down the cows and they all back away. I particularly like the one at the end who just runs, says, no, I am out of here. And it can make me wonder, which one am I? What am I? Am I, am I the cows? One of the cows? Or am I a goose? I guess it's not either way. You're not entirely a winner. But do I stand my ground or do I run with the herd? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in verse 4, the Bible says, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Archaea. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. This is what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said deep conviction. The message was given with deep conviction. And that deep conviction planted courage. And courage is all about staring down fear. And where does fear come from? Fear comes from an expectation that you'll be hurt or disadvantaged in some way if you do or say what you fear. And this is so much of what our life is bound up by. So much, even right now, there's been a lot of fear in the community, but there's also been a lot of courage. And so you've seen both the best of people and the worst of people at the same time in the same situation, simply by how they respond, by giving into fear or by deciding to follow courage. Now, I want to make a point. Fearlessness is not courage. It's not courageous to be without fear. It's not about being oblivious. My sense of fashion is about being oblivious. Bold actions can come from a lack of awareness of consequences. And this can be a cousin of foolishness. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about with an awareness, with a full knowledge, feeling the emotion of fear and deciding to do what needs to be done anyway. C.S. Lewis said it well and... um, No, I'm not referring to Narnia this week. That's C.S. Lewis. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, he said, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. 
What does that mean? It means that courage, if at every single virtue, at some point, your virtues are tested by the opportunity to give in to fear or to act with courage. And this is so easy to talk about, but so much harder to do. Now, I'd like to have a couple of readings, and uh, we're going to have one of our young people giving us two readings. And that's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11, and Acts chapter 2, 22 to 24, and 31, verse 31. The Resurrection of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I have received and passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some of them had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him up to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God was raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Thank you, Micah. As you can tell, today... We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. You may be thinking, yes, but this is three weeks in a row on the same topic. And if you are, congratulations for paying attention. Did you know that Jesus lived on this earth for approximately 33 years? And three years was the length of his ministry. But nevertheless, 
50% of the words of the gospel are dedicated to the one week of his life in which he died and raised from the dead. So I think we can have a few regular sermons on the topic. You know that Peter, in the scripture we just looked at in Acts chapter 2, in the very first sermon at Pentecost, placed the death and resurrection of Jesus front and centre. Front and centre in what he was challenging and calling the people of Jerusalem to do. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, says that this is of first importance. First importance. That this is not secondary, it's first. And, And leads me to another question. If the death and resurrection of Jesus is of first importance, what does that mean for everything else? What does it mean for everything else in your life? What does it mean for every other debate, argument that we have in churches? Every other issue. If this is of first importance, everything else is at best secondary and quite likely less important than that. So the scriptures tell us that if you are going to put one thing at the center of your life, if there's one thing to talk about, this is it, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there are five elements to this. I'm not going to be talking in great detail about all five because the scriptures do it so plainly. But quite clearly, the death and resurrection of Jesus are firstly, the basis of our faith in Jesus. They are the basis. They are the foundation. Secondly, it's the perfect example of perfect love. He sacrificed himself, not for his friends, but for his enemies. Because even the people who said they were his friends ran away from him the second he was arrested. They ran away. He sacrificed himself for people who denied him, even when they knew him. He sacrificed himself for people who didn't know him. He sacrificed himself for people who rejected him. He even sacrificed himself for people who persecuted him and crucified him. The perfect example of perfect love. And that's why he had the gall to say to us that we need to love our enemies. Thirdly, he is the hope for our future to be with Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus gives us hope because we all know that we're all going to die. You know, I used to joke around with one of my friends um, uh, when I was working in financial services he, and he was an orthopedic surgeon and he'd say, you know, um, you know, your life's kind of meaningless or the work you do is kind of meaningless, you know, because you're just working with money and, and I'm helping to save lives. And I somewhat cynically said to him, well, you don't save lives, you just delay death. Um, the fact is, it's true. We're all going to die. Um, but what Jesus did with the resurrection was he said, actually, death isn't the end. <laughs> it's a new beginning. It's a new beginning. And his resurrection is the hope for our future to be with Jesus. Fourthly, it is a call for us to change our ways and follow Jesus. The death and resurrection is a call. He didn't just do it for us. He did it as an example for us. 
And we'll talk about more about that shortly. And fifthly, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the evidence. It's crucial evidence. It's powerful evidence that our faith is founded on reality, historical reality, not fantasy, not hope. It's an event. It's a moment in time. It's something that really happened. Let's have a reading from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 20. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. We have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For, the, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. Thank you, Micah. You know, a lot of people will trivialise the resurrection. They will sneer at the miracle story of Jesus being resurrected from the dead. It's a fantasy. It's a corn god myth. These are things that I used to say as a young man. I used to say that believers are idiots. I treated my Christian friends as though they were geese, although maybe that's not such a bad thing. Paul faced that too. In the first century, people faced death all the time. They didn't have medicines. They didn't have the knowledge of viruses. They didn't have the tools to treat illnesses. If you were fortunate enough to reach the age of 30, you would have seen a lot of death on the way. The one thing you would never see is people being resurrected from the dead. This was crazy talk, foolishness, a ridiculous story that could not be believed. And you see, Paul's writing here to the Corinthian church because they're feeling the pressure to give in to the crowd and give up their faith in the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul lays it out. He says, you know what? If the resurrection is not true, then every single thing that we do as Christians is a waste of time. You're wasting your time going to church. You're wasting your time hoping in this. There's no point in worrying about heaven. There's no point in being religious. There's no other way. You know, you're echoing Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said these things. Why? Because he is the one who died and raised from the dead. And this is Paul's point. He says the resurrection is the centre of this. You give it up, you're giving up the lot. Paul faced the same challenge in Athens 
when he preached the gospel there, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 32. And he says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. You see, Paul makes the assertion that the resurrection is proof of what is to come. Proof. So how can we be confident that it's true? How can we, 2,000 years later, be so confident that it's true? How can I stand here and say, absolutely, this is the way that it is? Well, I'll tell you that a lot of the evidence is in the scriptures that we just looked at. First of all, we know that the resurrection was the center of the message of the apostles. It wasn't an add-on. It wasn't a peripheral thing. It wasn't something that you said, oh, you know, look, here's a nice bit of the story. It was the center of the message. They said, if this isn't, if this isn't true, forget everything else we said. We also know that they reported their stories as eyewitnesses. Paul refers to more than 500 at the same time, and he names 14 of them. He does this in a context of being criticised for the account of the resurrection. I'll come back to that. Just as an interesting point with eyewitnesses, we've just seen a very, very major court case, which was all about witnesses and evidence. In the High Court, Cardinal George Pell was acquitted in the High Court because they said there was insufficient evidence to actually convict him. That was their ruling. Now, humans can have a range of opinions on things, and the truth of the matter is, when you've got one eyewitness versus another person, and then you've got a little bit of contradictory evidence on the side, it's very, very difficult for us to convict someone, which is why we have the presumption of innocence in this country. We say, you are innocent until proven guilty. In that case, the only people who really know the truth are God, the cardinal, and the complainant. The rest of us, we have no clue. Everyone else has just got an opinion. And that's why we ended up with this sort of um, verdict. But you see, with the Gospels, we've got multiple eyewitnesses multiple independent eyewitnesses, and they didn't even all get on with each other. They actually competed with each other. They wanted to be first with Jesus. Paul, previously named Saul, persecuted them until he actually saw the risen Jesus. You see, these are, these are not people who are natural, get along with each other. Guys, you read the book of Galatians, and you can almost cut the air of the tension between Paul and Peter. These were not Hey, we're just getting on with each other, people. These were people that were united by a common conviction. Now, we know that the disciples were persecuted on the basis of their faith. We know that this account gained them nothing at all in a material sense. It didn't give them popularity. It certainly didn't give them respect in the broader community. 
For the first 250 to 300 years, they were relentlessly persecuted, generation after generation of Christians. But the most important part is this first group, the ones who claim to be eyewitnesses, persecuted, killed, offered the opportunity to give up this ridiculous story, but not one of them did. So you see, if someone wanted to prove the story wrong, if somebody wanted to be able to say, no, this is not true, given what Paul has said, all they had to do was get one of the named witnesses to recant their testimony, just one, hold a sword to their throat, do whatever you need to do, recant your testimony, but none did. We know none did. Even threatened with death. Okay, if you can't get one of the witnesses to, produce the body. All right, we know that Jesus rose from the dead and the account is he left the tomb. And we know that the Romans were concerned or the Jewish leaders were concerned about this and got Roman guards posted on the tomb. So produce the body. When Peter preached at Pentecost and directly referred to the resurrection, this was not years after the event. It was a mere 50 days. 50 days after the event. Produce a body. Demonstrate what's going on. They couldn't. 53 days after the crucifixion, 50 days after the resurrection, many of the people in Jerusalem would have witnessed the whole thing. Nobody could prove it wrong, despite a lot of desire to prove it wrong. So you see, when you're faced with that kind of evidence, it's pretty hard to reject it. Nevertheless, I did try, even faced with this kind of evidence, I tried very hard, and I used to say, this is all a myth. And say, yes, of course, all of this sort of stuff, but it's actually all a myth. Jesus is a myth. The death is a myth. The whole lot's a myth. But unfortunately... Or fortunately, in my case, we know that Jesus lived and died, not just because of what's in the Bible, not just because of that, but because he's also referred to by early historians and authors, including a fellow called Lucian, who lived in the second century, in the early part of the second century, who hated Christians and was referred with contempt to Jesus. And I quote, they revered him as a god, used him as a lawgiver and set him down as a protector. To be sure, after that, other whom they still worship, the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult to the world. You see, he was dripping with contempt as he wrote. But there's a problem here for people like me looking 2,000 years later trying to prove it wrong. See, when even the enemies of the gospel in the second century and the first century acknowledged the reality of the death of Jesus, you can no longer claim that it was just a myth. You now have powerful evidence that it really happened. And you have evidence that it really happened. You have eyewitness accounts claiming of the resurrection. You have the opportunity to turn those eyewitness accounts around and say, hey, you know, I know you're lying. Tell me you're lying. I'll give you, a, I don't know, the equivalent to $10 million in drachmas or whatever it was at the day. No, they didn't. They didn't give it up. They willingly took the persecution. They took the confiscation of their possessions. They took it. They showed the sort of courage that we admire so much today. The sort of courage that only somebody who's got a really deep conviction about 
what they're doing can display. You know, and that confidence is the confidence that needs to come into our lives. See, Paul, in that scripture in Acts 17 earlier, he said, you know, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. That means to change our ways. It means to turn away the word repent, metanoia, same root word as metamorphosis, the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly. It's to turn around, to turn around the emphasis of our lives from being self-seeking and self-promoting to being God-seeking and God-promoting. And that's the challenge. And then that ripples through our behaviour and it gives us that confidence and conviction to stand our ground as we need to. Anyway, at the end of the day, I'm left with the words of my favourite apostle, Thomas. He initially ran with those who did not believe. After, after first of all, the women saw Jesus at the tomb. And by the way, that was a, a shameful thing in the day to have the women being the first account. But nevertheless, the Gospels faithfully record that it was the women who got the resurrection story right first. Not the, not the bigwigs, not the apostles. But Thomas, he was like, no, no, I won't believe this. I I doubt it. That's why he's known as Doubting Thomas. That's why he's my favourite. But in the end, he was faced with the reality of Jesus. And he made it perfectly clear how he saw Jesus as he said, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your perfect love. Thank you, Jesus, for being so willing to do so much for us. You know, Father, this weekend we are inspired by the courage of people, great people who did great things, not even knowing what they were going into at times, but nevertheless who showed the sort of character under fire in suffering that we admire so much. But Lord, we see the perfect example in you. We see that example of love, of sacrifice, of giving yourself up for us. And we pray, Lord, that we can learn to stand our ground, that we can learn about what you call of first importance. And that, Lord, with that deep conviction, we can help so many other people to find the strength, the comfort, the courage, the power, the confidence that comes from knowing the truth and having confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.